Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey, everybody. Normally at this point in this podcast, you'd hear some jaunty music and you'd listen to my upbeat recitation of what we're talking about today and who will be joining us. All that seems like a discordant note to sound as we go into our main segment today, which concerns this past weekend's mass shooting in Orlando, Florida, the worst of its kind since, I think, Wounded Knee. I want everyone to know that we agonized over the best way to talk about this. We considered any number of options, because when people are hurt, you want to help them. And when something keeps happening repeatedly, you want to try something to break the cycle. Thought about reaching out to people in our organization with a personal stake in what was essentially a slaughter visited upon the LGBT community. We thought about reaching people closer in Orlando. I thought about how do we do this fairly? How do we get this right? And I was paralyzed by the sheer number of options we could take. And I've been kept awake a few nights now just trying to figure out if what seemed to be a perfect option wasn't also just an easy way out. So in the end, I'm joined by Zach and Arthur because we've been the public face of this co- of our company on this podcast. We're going to try to strip away some of the artifice in an effort to just confront both the story and our own limitations. We're imperfect voices for this task. We're well-meaning but fumbling. I think that you listeners deserve the opportunity to hear what this is really like for the people you tune into every week. We feel in many ways lost, a little bit defeated. But let's try to battle through that. We have other things happening in the show. Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein joins us to talk about her campaign. We're going to talk more about the Puerto Rico debt crisis, more about what Bernie Sanders supporters do from here, and more about the tensions between Beltway Republicans and Donald Trump with Congressman Reed Ribble. So you'll have the opportunity to listen to our slightly greater mastery of matters which probably matter less. But here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. So I'm here with Zach Carter. Hi, guys. Arthur Delaney. Hi. I wanted to start by asking this question. Um, I think the, the three of us, when we kind of work every day, we have this kind of th- idea in our head that part of our job is to try to make the world a better place. And so what we do is we write stuff. And we on this podcast, we talk stuff. And I think that we're all sort of like geared toward doing the hard work of using words to unlock some solution for people or some answer for people about how to do things. So now we have this story from Orlando, which contains stuff that keeps coming up so repetitive. It's another mass shooting. It's another massive uh, example of what hatred of the LGBT community can can wreak. And it has this sort of like a little bit of susan of Islamic terrorism, just enough to maybe perhaps mislead us. We keep writing about this stuff and the problem doesn't go away. Are we... Have we are we have we failed? Are we failures? Because I kind of because I, I I sort of sit back and, and it's like there's only so many different ways you can talk about you know justice for the LGBT community. And there's only so many different ways you can talk about the need to do something about mass shootings and keeping 
uh, dangerous people away from super deadly weapons. No way, man. Come on. There's always the soupçon of futility this, in our daily lives, and uh, you've got you've to be able to This feels like more than a soupçon. I mean, I'm sorry we've already used that word three times. It's probably a record, but... You know, when I uh, this weekend in, in D.C. was Pride weekend, it was it was great, and I went out and celebrated with my friends in that community. I met some new people, and uh, in fact, I was out to dinner with my college roommate who uh, uh, just got married uh, to his husband this year, and felt great. Saturday night felt great. Felt like this sort of like dread that kind of has been like part of this election season. I had pushed it away, and then I wake up the next morning and just like the bottom fell out of my psyche reading the news. And then when the death count went up to 49, it was like, I don't know, I was pretty devastated. And I, I didn't, I, you know, I just kind of felt like just angry. And I felt like my brain chemicals were doing those things. Just like, okay, clear some space for some anger. Now level it off, edge it off. And it's just like, oh yeah, the mass shooting, this is what my brain chemistry does now every single time this happens. I think there is, there is a sense of... Um repetition and futility to this because we see this every couple of weeks, right? I mean, every couple of weeks, something similar to this happens where a whole lot of people die. Um, but I also am starting to feel uh, a, a sort of deeper sense of dread about the whole thing. Um, the whole thing being people killing each other in mass in the streets in the United States. Uh, I remember for a long time when I was growing up seeing um, images of the 1960s and riots breaking out and the the sort of political violence of that time and thinking to myself, man, that must have been a really crazy time to be alive. I'm really glad that that things are so much more peaceful here now, today. And I find it really hard not to think about the 60s now when I think of all of the different types of, of violence that we're seeing. This is this is an attack on on the gay community in in Orlando. We've seen previous mass shootings just targeting women in Santa Barbara. We've seen previous mass shootings uh, targeting a Sikh temple in in Michigan. And that, to me, starts looking like a whole lot of organized political violence, right-wing terrorism, um, that reminds me of the upheavals of the 1960s. And when you combine that with the rhetoric that Trump has been spewing on the campaign trail, and which, let's be clear, it's not just Trump. I mean, he, he and the other Republican nominees for president were saying a lot of really nasty things about about the the Muslim community and and continue to do so. They act as if as if you just dump on Muslims enough that this will all go away. Uh, and I, I I feel like we are maybe maybe backsliding back into another period of of really significant upheaval, which kind of scares the shit out of me. And don't forget the mass shooting against African Americans in South Carolina last year. Right, right. The common thread <laughs> being obviously guns. And I I think one thing this week that was better than uh, the aftermath of some of these other mass shootings is that there was uh, more political pressure brought to bear directly on this question. Uh, you know, it was it's always a, a moment of silence and whatever, and this time we got that plus a filibuster in the Senate, and w- which which resulted in a vote, which we don't at the time of this recording know the outcome of, but a, a policy question is being raised. Yeah. Uh, a couple of policy questions, uh, and you know, th- and that's good. I mean, that's that's better than what we usually get. One of the questions is: Should people who are on terror watch lists be able to buy guns? Yeah, 
Well, but, you know, but here's the thing about that question. I feel like, you know, I, I don't want to dump on people like Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who we've had on the show a couple of times. Um, and it's, it, it is a real true believer for, for reigning in gun violence and is doing absolutely everything he can. But the fact is that step, the fact that this is the step that Democrats are fighting for on gun violence, reigning in gun violence, just strikes me as so weak and impotent that, that people who are suspected of being terrorists who are on some secret list, they can't buy weapons of war. That's the new, the new slogan for like assault weapons and assault right. rifles. Yeah. Um, that is going to take tackle such a tiny, tiny part of the gun violence problem. And I feel like it's, there is no segment of the Democratic Party that is willing to just go out there and say, you know what? It's not just assault weapons. It is weapons. It is bad for people to have things that are designed to kill other people. That is just straight up bad, and we need to limit that as much as possible. Nobody wants to have that be part of the debate, and we tiptoe around responsible hunters and stuff and all this other crap. And it's, I, I you know, they don't, Democrats don't do that on campaign finance reform. They don't say, you know, we need a constitutional amendment to overturn, um, you know, of parts of Citizens United. You know, there are some some dark money donors who are actually pretty fine guys, and we really don't want to target the responsible ones. They're, you know, and, and they're not going to, you know, the thing is, they're not going to get a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. But there is at least a dialogue. That yeah, they're still talking about a, an amendment, yeah. yeah. Right, but there, there's at least a dialogue which accurately expresses the views of most of the people on that side of the debate. And what we have in Congress instead is, oh, God, I guess this is all we can really practically consider. Well, right. two things. One is it's not even a practical consideration because it's taking a totally undemocratic, weird terror watch list yes. that people should really think twice about. But the other uh, thing is that they have to do, they have to work with whatever political movement they have, and mass shootings are, and in this case, by a guy with terrorist sympathies, that's what you have. And you have to chip away at, at it however you can. And so that's the, they're trying to seize a moment and I think uh, uh, people who want gun control need to respect the fact that this, these mass shootings are merely a symbol of a much different problem, which is daily gun violence, mostly suicide. Yeah. And yeah. so you have to take what you can get I also, as, you, as, you, as you make progress, even if it's merely symbolic. I also feel like I have to say that, well, I by no means paid attention to all 13 hours of the filibuster. I just caught the brass tacks. I was bothered by the fact that there was so much talk about so much emphasis on terrorism and there needed to be, especially from the Democratic Party, an emphasis on the fact that this was an attack on the LGBT community. This was an outright example of hatred toward those people. And I was struck by the fact that one of the first things we learned going on in Orlando in the aftermath was that, oh, well, if you're a gay man, you can't give blood. You can't donate blood to this cause. That is part of a heritage of hate. That is part of a heritage of hate. Legal laws passed by the state that have enshrined this notion that members of the LGBT community are less than human. And the the actual fact that 49 people died and, and, and at least a similar number were injured, it resonates in that community because... If you're a 50-year-old or 60-year-old member of that community, you recognize yourself as a survivor of a time when you literally felt like cannon fodder politically, when you were out there and violence is being done to you all the time. People who were 
adults, middle-aged adults in the gay community, when AIDS swept across America, consider the government's response to that crisis as a de facto genocide on, on their community. And all of this stuff has not gone away. It's not gone away. And, and, and you know, it's, it's really, really frustrating because I feel like we've made so much progress in bringing justice to the members of the LGBT community in recent years. We celebrate those incremental measures. And then we think about the fact that, well, in North Carolina, they're, they, they, they fucking think that tr- the trans community are danger to people. They are perhaps the most vulnerable members of our society. Well, and, when, and a tr- when a member of the trans community goes into a bathroom, they're not the one, they're the ones that are the focus of violence and humiliation. It's and and as long as we keep allowing ourselves this sort of like I don't know this this magical thinking that oh well we succeeded and we we repealed DOMA that's great we we uh, we, we took away don't ask don't tell that's great gay marriage is quickly becoming the law of the land that's great we still haven't addressed the fact that there's still too many people with too much violent intent bent on hurting members of the LGBT community and. We don't. We're. I feel like there's an erase. This is a race and erasing happening right now. Oh. It's happening on the Republican side. They won't talk about the fact that that this was this was visited upon a, a gay club, a historical safe haven for the gay community dating back decades. And 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 you know I, I regret that the Democrats don't bring this up when they're staging their. Dramatic filibuster for incremental reform. I don't think the uh, I, there has been any attempt by uh, Democrats and gun control advocates to dodge the fact that this was terrorism against gay people. Um, I don't think that them focusing on guns. We keep thinking about what happened to this bar as something that happened from some foreign country. We talk about it being ISIS-related. Oh, this is related to the rise of ISIS, you know, lone wolf terrorism in the United States. It's not lone wolf terrorism in the United States. It is United States terrorism against gay people that has existed for decades. This is absolutely... The uh, mass shooting at a gay club is the most American fucking thing I can think of. Right. I, I'm just saying I don't think the, the liberal response to this has uh, been... Do you ex- hear anyone talking like I'm talking about it now, though? Well... Y- well, that's a confusing question because yes, but <laughs> okay, I, no, no, I, I, I actually, I honestly, I think the policy question, uh, except in the instance of whether gay people can give blood, I don't think the policy question on guns is a rude one to gay people. I feel like a lot of people who are talking about this, who are talking about guns, I don't think it's an insult to uh, the, I the gay the, community. But I, 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 I see think your the difference point. is that we've always said that that a mass shooting at a school is unacceptable. There's this idea that killing children is unacceptable. It's beyond the pale. But we've never had a series of laws in this country that discriminated against kids of the age that were gunned down in Sandy Hook. Okay, They were allowed to go to bathrooms. Right. Okay, They were allowed to walk in public. They were allowed to be who they were, live the lives they were living as children. There was never sort of an organized attempt by, by crazy religious types or conservatives to really stick it to school children, okay? But there's always been that effort to stick it to members of the LGBT community. And, and particularly in ways that are, you know, really pointless other than, other than to set, like, a state-sponsored message 
that that these people are less are second class citizens, right? Like like the the bathroom laws in in North Carolina and other other local gov- government areas. Those things are not going to be able to be enforced. No one is going to be at the at the freaking bathroom door asking you to present your birth certificate, right? The whole point is just to say you're not as much of a person as other people. Yeah, yeah. There's no there's no action attempt on the poli- uh, part of law enforcement to actually make sense of that. But law. are you saying it's, it's an empty? It's an empty. It's a, literally just a gesture. But are of you saying anger it's a it's bad that Democrats are in the Senate and some Republicans now are. Uh, considering legislation that I don't, will, that, I don't. That, so, so these are the two things. They have nothing to do with. I uh, do believe. I do believe. I would like to see Democrats put what really happened at the center of this debate. Instead of talking about lone wolf terrorism, they should talk about the fact that for decades we enshrined policies that literally have engendered the notion that it's okay to do things like what happened. Okay, but here are the things that here are the policy things we're talking about. Uh, the so-called terrorist gun loophole, which allows terrorists to get guns, and the other one is the gun show loophole and the private seller loophole. Is that okay that that's what they're doing while not also as far uh, I mean, doing something that that somehow honors the uh, gay community legislatively? I, I feel I feel like they need to put in a furious fight against things like the the bathroom law. I think that you can't just treat it as like a joke. You can't just say oh, North Carolina is so backwards. Those dummies. I, no. I don't think North Carolina's bathroom law enters into this as a policy question. When we're talking about the U.S. Senate, and, what, what and I'm that's... saying, what I'm saying is that there's a overall penumbra of of uh, state-sponsored hate toward the LGBT community, and it's been with us for a long time. Yeah, and when you see it, when it, when when you see Republicans get away with erasing them from the picture, and when Democrats don't even include it in their in the suggestion of why we need to do something about it. Why do we need to corral guns? One big reason is that there are homophobes out there who are armed and are willing to walk into a gay bar and shoot up the place because they've been told, they've they've had it engendered in them by the laws of this country and the mores of this country that that's okay. That's okay. It's a glorious thing to do. I, uh, well, what, two things. I don't. I don't think that is what the killer in this case, from what we know, uh, I mean, I think he has motivations that are in front of that. The truth that's, is, we're I think never, that's far in the We're background. never going to know the truth about what motivated the kid. We're just going to have speculation. Right, right. I, I just also but think weirdly, this is what Donald Trump is saying. Weirdly. I also think it's exactly what he's saying. We can't let people come in and kill gay people. And, like and, this. and I, and with all due respect, Jason, I mean, I think that this can be a tragedy targeting the gay community and that also people people organizing violent action against the gay community can also be part of a larger trend of people organizing violence against a whole lot of other minority communities in the United States. And that that can be representative of a, of a problem as well. Those, those two things, it, they, they can exist simultaneously in both right. problems. I just think there's a specific, there, there's a real, if you, if you talk to members of that community and I've been, been trying to do so and, and and hear their thoughts on social media. It's a thing apart to them. It's like both. It is both things simultaneously. It's and there's no real distance there, but it is both. They feel 
a situation that reflects the larger problem of gun violence, but they also do recognize it explicitly as something they've lived with for a long time and uh, that they desperately want some kind of new normal where this doesn't happen ever again. Uh, all right, we uh, still have show, so stick around. We'll be right back. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And we're back gratefully because today we have a very special guest in our office today. She is a physician. She's an activist and she is a presidential nominee. We were talking, of course, about Green Party candidate Jill Stein. Welcome to So That Happened. We're so glad you're here. It's really great to be here. Thank you. I think first question, although I do expect and anticipate that many of our listeners are going to be a little bit more hyper-informed on this issue than most, but who are you and why are you running for president? So I'm a mother on fire and I'm a medical doctor uh, that practiced clinical medicine for decades, and now I'm practicing political medicine because it's the mother of all illnesses. I learned out there in the real world as a mother and as a physician. And if we're going to fix what really ails us, everything from true physical illness to poverty and climate change and nuclear weapons and so on, the things that really threaten our health and very existence we got to fix that sick political system and make it work for us. So I am running as the only candidate with a political party that is not poisoned 
by corporate money. So I have the unique liberty to actually tell it like it is and offer the real solutions right now in our time that answer the urgent, desperate needs of the American people who are being thrown under the bus by the two corporate political parties. So Ralph Nader, who ran for president under the Green Party several years ago, um, wrote an essay in the Washington Post a couple of months ago where he said Bernie Sanders had to run as a Democrat in this election because it's just impossible to get anything done outside of the Democratic Party if you're interested in the social justice issues that his campaign has been talking about and which you've talked about in previous campaigns. So why, what, what, what is Ralph getting wrong there? Why run as a third-party candidate instead of try to work within the Democratic Party system? Well, I think, unfortunately, history is showing us exactly how far you can go. Uh, you cannot have a revolutionary campaign in a counter-revolutionary party. I think Bernie has done fabulous work. And that is exactly what had to happen. My campaign never could have kicked up that storm. And he could not have either outside of the Democratic Party. But now in front of the eyes of the world, we have seen just how far the Democratic Party will let you go. So Bernie has climbed the mountain, but he's not going to go to the promised land. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party is making that eminently clear by virtue of closing him out of debates, by rigging the conventions, by tampering with elections, uh, by colluding with the corporate media and basically basically slamming him the night before, you know, the the, the primary in, in California, where, by the way, two million votes still have not been counted in a race that was won by Hillary by only half, less than half a million votes. So, uh, you know, I think we have learned the lesson here that um, the Democratic Party will do a fake left with these wonderful principled candidates, but while it's faking left, it continues to march right. And what happened to Bernie happened to Dennis Kucinich, happened to uh, Howard Dean, as a peace candidate who was sabotaged with the Dean scream. Uh, happened to Jesse Jackson, an incredibly powerful, principled campaign in the you know, in the momentum of the civil rights era, who was sabotaged again by a fear campaign and smear campaign that brought him down in the polls. So, so over the you... decades, they have faked left while the party becomes more militarist, corporatist, and imperialist. So have you always thought of yourself as someone outside of the Democratic Party, or did you did you have a, a personal movement away from the party at, at some key event? Um, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the political process. I was tricked into running for office for the first time in um, uh, in the year 2000 for the 2002 race against Mitt Romney as governor. And I was an activist. Uh, I was an activist as a physician, uh, as a mother, uh, you know, fighting hard for kids' health and for everyday people and our health and our healthcare system and an environment that we can survive in and basically kept running up against the power of the Democratic Party in our legislature. So to make a long story short, uh, yes, I was dragged into the process, really tricked into it by the Green Party that said, well, just keep <laughs> doing what you're doing and call it a political campaign. So I said, oh, sure, that sounds easy. And of course, it turned out to be different. But once I was into the fray, I discovered there was enormous hunger for real human beings out there because you don't find many in the world of uh, presidential politics. Yeah, there's a real <laughs> authenticity gap in politics. Yes, um, totally. This is a race of distinctions, and obviously you're fighting to distinguish yourself from other candidates. I noticed the other day that you tweeted about how you had taken the I side with quiz, 
and uh, and and discovered that you were ninety nine percent in alignment with Bernie Sanders. Right. So I took the same quiz, and I found that I was a one hundred percent in alignment with Bernie Sanders. I was ninety nine percent in alignment with you. I was ninety nine percent in alignment with Hillary Clinton. I was sixty six percent in alignment with Gary Johnson, and nine percent with Trump. So what am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, let me. What say- am I? What about politics? Am I not thinking? about to to sort of like parse these distinctions a little finer and discover the real sort of like segment that you occupy in this in this race. And, and I can tell you what that is. And and I side with is wonderful as these online quizzes are, sure, but sure. they don't quite get, you know, they tend to parrot what the candidates are saying. And Hillary Clinton can say that she's for, you know, health care for everybody. But unfortunately, the Affordable Care Act is not health care for everybody. It's skyrocketing costs that prices people out of of actually getting health care, even if they are lucky enough to be insured, et cetera. So where I differ, and, you know, the question is always raised, Bernie versus my campaign, where truth tell the differences don't really matter because we are far closer than he is to anyone or than I am to anyone. And at the end of the day, the Democrats are sabotaging Bernie's campaign. So it's going to be Hillary where the differences are voluminous. And if you'd like me to summarize those, I can say it very simply. (laughs) You know, Hillary is the cheerleader for, uh, for Wall Street, for war, and for the Walmart economy. And she may say otherwise, but you know what? Equal wages at poverty is not adequate. And uh, passing the CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Plan, uh, which she takes credit for, and, you know, she'd helped. She she cheered for it. Bill Clinton passed it. She promoted it. That was great. But, you know, having health care for children is not okay if their parents can't get health care. And providing uh, uh, child care for children when the parents don't have jobs is not okay. So we need a real agenda that serves children and families. Hillary led the way in dismantling the safety net, the aid for families with, with dependent children. Hillary led the way uh, to push down the poverty wages in Haiti because corporations and you know were going to Haiti to wring maximum dollar out of the impoverished workforce. So Hillary Clinton led that charge. Do you he- think that Bernie Sanders' campaign however, has affected the way that Hillary Clinton has talked about herself and about her, her agenda. Do you think that he's moved her any to, to, to the left over the last, whatever, I guess it's been about yeah, a year, right? Yeah, any success at all. Oh, sure, definitely. But, you know, you got to look at the walk and not just the talk because Hillary changes the talk all the time. And it's very easy under pressure from Bernie for her to flip from promoting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will offshore more of our jobs, or agreeing to, you know, minimum wages, but not to a living wage. So even there, you know, she hasn't gotten to it. In the agreement that Hillary and Bernie uh, put out last night, they adopted Hillary's language, which was raising wages, not even embracing a living wage, or less expensive higher education instead of that's, free higher education. That's actually something I wanted to get to. with you. Let's. I think one of the things that you've talked about a lot is the nature in which education in this economy just isn't working. We have students graduating and they're going into deep, deep debt and they're emerging into a job market that really, you know, it's like you're under you're underwater on a car loan. You don't get wages matched to the amount of money you have to pay off to get the education that you were told you needed to compete to get those jobs, which are inadequate, blah, 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 blah. It's a vicious cycle. What can a president do <laughs> to fix the situation? Is, and is, 
are we maybe in a situation where we just need a, a leader or a president to use the bully pulpit to say, here's how you protect yourself while we take, undertake a 20-year campaign to try to normalize the way these moving parts are failing to fit? Here's the good news. There's good news? There's very good news on this. All right, this. lay it on me. So there are two pieces of good news. One is that 43 million uh, young people and not so young who are locked into predatory student loans, that is a winning plurality of the vote. So just by self-organizing among millennials in debt, who are pretty good at self-organizing on social out. media, yeah. yeah, it just so happens, just by getting that word out, if they know that they, in fact, can come out and take over this election and win it, they can do that because when the president gets into office on day one, if the president wants, by virtue of appointment, because the president appoints the chair of the Federal Reserve, the president can essentially cancel the debt without having to move that through Congress. The reason for that is... Uh, in all of our wisdom, you know, we bailed out the banks to the tune of about $16 trillion. Taxpayers if you, bailed out the banks. Taxpayers yeah. and also the Fed by just a digital well, magic Well, they didn't trick. get their money from magic. They got it from taxpayers. Well, uh, yes and no. Okay, Partly, well, the Fed just makes the money. I well, mean, well let me, the Fed does. The, <laughs> the Fed can cancel debt. Uh, without costing anybody a thing. So essentially they expand the money supply digitally by canceling the debt. It's a magic trick that you don't actually have to understand, but the bottom line is it expands the money supply, which is a bad thing to do unless you also make it a more productive economy. But guess what? Empowering young people to actually do what they are trained to do, to actually bring their creativity and their vision to our economy and recreate it, that is like the uh, stimulus package of our dreams. So it expands the economy. Bottom line here is that the Federal Reserve can cancel that debt. It's about $1.3 trillion worth of a bailout, worth of a so-called quantitative easing right. is the formal name for it. We did that for Wall Street to the tune of about $4 trillion, merely to merely yeah. to enable them to recklessly gamble more at our expense. In this case, it's a quantitative easing, which is fabulous, which is exactly what we need, not only to restore the productivity of our economy and bring in a younger generation, but this is good for society. It's always the younger generation that leads us forward, whether it's on civil rights or the anti-war movement or immigrant rights, anti-sweatshop, you name it. It is that younger generation. So by what, liberating what them... About? We essentially liberate our ground troops to then carry forward step by step the rest of our agenda for justice. But it begins by liberating an entire generation who, in my experience, is ready not only to come out, but they become missionaries for this campaign when they realize that they actually have the numbers to make this a winning campaign. So it seems to me like what you're talking about there is he's getting the Fed more, the government essentially, more involved in the extension, essentially, of credit to consumers and to to not just to banks, but to the rest of the population. Do you think there are other areas where the government could play a role in finance, not as a as a regulator, but as actually a provider of credit? Absolutely. And this is another thing the president can do right away. Uh, you may know of Bill Black, who was a regulator, a Wall Street regulator during the savings and loan crisis. He wrote the book called Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Anyways, as a regulator, he has sort of a series of things the president can do by executive order to essentially downsize the banks. And so this is one thing that 
I would do if I were sitting in the Oval Office is implement those requirements, uh, which we don't need to go into the technical details, but it's possible capital to... Capital levels, et cetera. Exactly. Minimum capital requirements and requiring the banks to actually uh, downsize proportional to their risk or to, you know, it would... That was what it would amount to. And so that enables us to break up the banks. Part of breaking up the big banks is establishing public banks like North Dakota has, which enabled them to weather the economic storm. Uh, but once you have public banks, both at the federal level and then on down to the state and local level, then you have capital for small businesses, for municipalities, for worker cooperatives to undertake the kinds of uh, services and businesses that we need to move into the 20th cent 21st century and get out of the 20th century. So going back to Bernie's campaign for a second, um, I, I felt like for a lot of the debate, well, several of the debates, when, when they would turn to foreign policy, he would look sort of lost, but he always sort of had this like ace up his sleeve, which was that most Democrats are really uncomfortable with um, Clinton's very hawkish record on foreign policy, at least for a Democrat. How would you distinguish yourself from from Bernie and from Hillary on foreign policy? So, you know, Bernie has moved over the course of the campaign and has adopted a more kind of public interest uh, position, which I think is very good. Uh, he hasn't quite gone all the way. But, you know, in my view, if he were liberated from the Democratic Party, he might very well do the right thing. Um, but, you know, my position is very clear, as is uh, that of the Green Party. We would have a foreign policy based on international law and human rights and on diplomacy, not on military and economic domination. And I think it's really important to set the record straight where that this current policy has taken us. And if there's any sort of rational, you know, basis for this policy, uh, that we currently employ. It appears to be selling weapons for the war profiteers because that seems to be what we're doing. By any other measure, this policy is an absolute disaster. It has cost us $6 trillion since the 9-11 attack. $6 trillion, And by the way, for everybody listening out there, that comes down to $75,000 per American household by the time the costs are paid for the health care for the wounded soldiers, etc. And what do we have to show for that? Also, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, not to mention tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers killed and maimed, a million people in Iraq alone killed, which is not winning us the hearts and minds of the Middle East or the rest of the world. What have we created, okay, for this all-out effort at which no stone was left unturned? There was no resource that was not mobilized. What did we get? Failed states, mass refugee migrations, and worse terrorist threats that are blowing back at us as we speak. We need to turn this around and have a foreign policy based on international law and human rights. One last question. You look at this election season and the way it's gone so far. It's been, well, it's been a feast for people who are addicted to schadenfreude, for sure. For sure. Is there... A way to cut against that when you're when you're in a small party and you're not taking corporate donations, you're not taking super PAC money, and you've got to sort of beat back against a lot of vulgar noise with maybe something that sounds virtuous. How do you amplify that in this current climate? 
So there are a lot of people uh, in the Sanders campaign who are going to be looking for another place to hang their hats. Right. And believe me, we are being uh, mobbed by those people now all up and down the Sanders campaign, from lowly volunteers to high-level uh, organizers. And they are not only coming in, but they are missionary about continuing the revolution. And you know, I mean, in many ways, this is the perfect storm right now. In many ways, it couldn't be better for a third party because 60% of the American public now is clamoring for a third party. Even the majority of Hillary's supporters don't support Hillary. They simply oppose Trump. And the same is true for the majority of Trump supporters. They don't support him. They just oppose Hillary. What's wrong with this picture? This is not what democracy looks like. Democracy is not the sum total of what we're against and what we fear. That's exactly why we're in a race to the bottom between the greater and lesser evil, and it's often hard to tell which is worse. And I would just add parenthetically that what Trump says Hillary has very much done, that is, raising the specter of nuclear war in the all-out war she wants to engage with Russia over Syria in the no-fly zone, which is an invitation to nuclear war with Russia, in the deportation of immigrants, which is going on now, uh, in, the, uh, in the climate catastrophe that Hillary has been promoting in the office of fracking that she established within the Secretary of State's department. You know, uh, Hillary created the refugees coming here from Honduras, and then she criminalizes them and says, no, I'm sorry, women and children, you cannot come here to save your lives. You're going back. So I say that is just as bad as Trump's talk is Hillary's walk. So it's important not to be intimidated by this fear campaign. And most people are clamoring for something else. Democracy needs a moral compass. It needs values. It needs vision. Forget the lesser evil. Fight for the greater good like our lives depend on it because they do with 43 million people out there whose lives really depend on our campaign right now. There's a real potential here to go all the way. If we don't go all the way, we get as far as we can get because the best the Democrats can do is slightly slow down our our exit over the cliff here. We're in an existential moment. This is the time for us to stand up. It's not only what kind of world, it's whether we will have a world or not. All right. Jill Stein, she is a candidate for the Green Party. Please look her up on the Internet. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Jill2016.com. Thank you so much. All right. We will be right back. back and we're going to return uh, our attention to Puerto Rico, which is still in the throes of a debt crisis. Uh, They have a huge, huge debt payment that's supposed to come due on July 1st. Uh, They've signaled that they're not going to be able to make that payment, which would touch off any number of catastrophic events for an island uh, island territory that has already faced down numerous pre-catastrophes. But we're going to pass a law. But will it be a good one, Zach? So I think there are real problems with this law that get um, sort of swept aside um, by the partisan debate around it. People look at this and they see Republicans saying, we don't want to give any money 
to Puerto Rico to help them out because that's a bailout. And they see Obama saying, hey, we really have to do something. And they've got a compromise where they're kind of sort of going to do something about it, maybe in the future. And that sounds like Obama has sort of pulled the Republicans a little bit to the left. And now we have some sort of solution that offers the promise of hope. Are we still calling this a bailout? We're just talking about debt restructuring. Here's what's amazing about Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico has been in a state of economic depression for about a decade. Over the last 10 years, it's hard to believe the United States has actually steadily grown its economy. Over that same period of time, Puerto Rico has steadily detracted. Their unemployment rate has been over 10% for 10 years now, which is a remarkable achievement given that people are fleeing the island. There is a net outflow of migration from Puerto Rico to the United States because the economy is so bad, people don't want to live there anymore. More than half of all children living in Puerto Rico are living in poverty. And the reason why the, the country's economy is in, or the, the territory's economy is in such terrible shape is complicated, but it's due in part, it has been fueled by the fact that it's not a state. It's not a full member of the United States. So if you are living on Puerto Rico and you are super rich, it's cool because you don't have to pay income taxes to the United States. Right. But if you're living in, in Puerto Rico and you're super poor, it's not cool because one of the biggest anti-poverty programs in the United States is something called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And it is essentially free money for people who poor people who work. So you're not eligible for that. So they, they haven't had the same level of commitment from the federal government to help them turn their economy around and that so that, the United and that's, States got. That's money that poor people who work get at tax time and then spend. It sloshes through, throughout the state it economy. It is a trickle-up theory of, right. of how economics works. That right. you, you give people money, they spend it on things, which then creates... You know, gives businesses a reason to hire more people. But unlike some other economy. trickles, this one is proven. Right. So here's what's what's what exactly I, what I find. But but what's what's tricky about this trickle story is that Puerto Rico needs a lot of infrastructure development as well. They need, there are all sorts of. Pro, I mean, you know, you can get a, you can get a few miles outside of the big cities in in Puerto Rico and not have cell phone reception. Uh, so it's hard. For, it's hard to simply develop the country through the, the, to to boost its economy through cash transfers alone. And what has happened is that they've they've essentially been borrowing money in order to to run their own poverty programs for several years now. And that's how they ended up with this giant giant debt load. Um, how does Puerto Rico's status as a non-state? make this different from what would happen in a normal state. You know, governors are always like, well, in my state, we balance the books. Well, and it's a stupid boast because that's what all states are supposed to do. How is it different for Puerto Rico as a non-state? And well, well so states are states have the capacity, if they get into trouble, to file for bankruptcy. And this is not all, this is not a fun process. This is not something that, that any state governor wants to, or legislature wants to get their And how many states have ever done that? I don't know, to be honest. It's very rare. I can't um, think of ever having heard of that. But, but, I can't either. But, but there's a formal process, right? And, you know, we know the municipality of Detroit just went through bankruptcy, right? right. Puerto Rico is barred from doing that by virtue of being a, a territory. So it literally has no legal mechanism to reduce its debt burden, which, you know, just this, this sort of thing happens, okay? Like, you can blame the government of Puerto Rico for being, lack, like, corrupt and bad with spending and terrible about balancing their books. And there's there are elements of truth to all of that. Right. But countries get in, into debt crises all the time. It's a predictable thing that happens eventually. And the United States is supposed to have some sort of mechanism for dealing with it when it happens internally. And one way we deal with it is by having big transfers of cash from the federal government to the states 
in terms of pr federal programs like, you know, food stamps, welfare payments. And Puerto uh, Rico does Medicaid. have those. And they do get those, except with Medicaid, where they don't or they aren't eligible for as much Medicaid spending as other countries are. So they other states are rather. Um, and they're not el eligible for the EITC. Which is bigger than food. It's the one program besides Medicaid that's bigger than food stamps. Yeah. Historically, though, we gave Puerto Rico a lot of tax breaks to encourage economic development there. And there were a lot of there's a lot of capital that went to, capital that went to Puerto Rico to set up shop. So why isn't that wealth? Why isn't that wealth making a difference here? That pre the, the previous beachhead of development in Puerto Rico. Why is that not something that anyone can capitalize on now? Well, so what's interesting is that they the the comp com companies that left the island in 2006 when this set of tax breaks expired felt like it was more in their economic interest to pack up and leave and shut down and start up somewhere else, which is a very big cost, right, than it was to stick around in Puerto Rico. So there are no roots. It was just pure capital flight once the tax breaks ended. It's like a mini Brexit. In a sense. But remember, there's a reason why they leave. And, and they leave because there's not enough demand in the economy to support their being there, right? If, if, if you have a lot of demand in the economy, if people have money in their pockets like we've been talking about, then businesses don't just pack up and go. They, there's, there's good stuff in the economy. And if your tax rate goes up a little bit, it's not worth it for you to economically go through the trouble of, of relocating. And so Puerto Rico, I mean, their problems existed before 2006, but they've been really bad since then, when these these handful of businesses that had that were offering relatively good paying jobs because they can no longer do yeah. issue bonds to pay right. for their property services. But there's also there are also problems with the basic infrastructure on the island. Like you know, it, it's a tourist driven economy, right? Right. But even when they had all of that development stuff that was there in 2006, there were basic problems like not there not being enough hotel rooms to handle all the tourists. So you, they couldn't even get you know, the good money from the mainland that was coming. It's really easy to travel to Puerto Rico for vacation, by the way, and it's a really pleasant spot. We're making it sound like this totally miserable hellhole right now. But, um, you know, they're, they're, but they weren't able to handle the, the, the good things that were happening in their economy. And so what we're seeing with, with this bill that's coming forward called, called PROMESA is, is a sort of two-part process designed to deal with only the debt side of Puerto Rico's economy and not with any of the other demand side stuff. So we, we call it a debt crisis. We're sort of glossing over the fact that it's a, a broader economic crisis. So what does the bill make Puerto Rico do? It creates a new board that is a board of control that is set by Republicans and Democrats in Washington, which will impose uh, fiscal austerity budgets on, on the island. So they've got a raise taxes and cut spending, which is hard to do because they've already closed like hundreds of schools. So this is like um, what Rick Snyder did in Flint. Yes, except in an economy that's already depressed and, and, yeah. and is really out of, out of options. But in exchange for that, the control board also has the power to allow for debt relief so that people who have the, the investors who bought all these bonds that they that cannot be repaid will have to take haircuts. They won't get as much money back from it as the face value of these of these bonds say they will get. And that sounds like a smart idea, right? This is kind of how we've done debt restructurings. You know, with, that sounds like bankruptcy. Right. They took right. the risk. Something like that. Right. But here's the thing with Puerto Rico is that a lot of these bonds were bought by vulture fund investors after they had already plummeted in value. People who bought this stuff for like 20, 30, 40 cents on the dollar. If you give them a haircut of 20 or 30 percent, they're still making a really big profit on this. Right. And what these what these investors did was they bought this stuff and then they said when Puerto Rico said, "Okay, we can't make good on these debts. We need to figure out some way to like arrange for for a workout." 
outside of bankruptcy because, of course, there's no bankruptcy for Puerto Rico. And these guys just said, screw you, pay me. They essentially got political control over the island's domestic finances and then forced them to take all of these austerity measures. Uh, a bunch of unelected Wall Street hedge fund managers were able to set the spending priorities for the people of Puerto Rico. And so if you reward them by letting them continue to, to turn a profit about over this, you're essentially giving them political control and telling them that this is an acceptable way you're setting a precedent, a moral hazard precedent here, that this is an acceptable way for, for financial markets to control politics and democracy. And that's, that is, I think, very dangerous. So even if this works, even if they do get this, this debt reduction, this could be really problematic. Yeah, that sounds kind of bad. So, so here's the thing. There, there's another option out there, though. Like Bernie Sanders has put forward a bill which basically says we will buy back, the federal government will buy back every single bond that Puerto Rico issued at the price that whatever investor paid for it. So if you bought it at 30 cents on the dollar, you get 30 cents on the dollar. No profits for the vulture funds. It's a big bailout for the people who got in really early, right? Sure, yeah. All the mutual funds and the other investors. But it says it, it, it says I care more about the moral hazard of, of this sort of political hijacking than I do about reckless state financing. And then he's got this huge infrastructure plan which would be a, a, a very large infrastructure project designed to create jobs and make Puerto Rico's economy more viable for the 21st century. His bill is not going to pass. It's not even being considered. They're going to do the other bill. But well, when you said there's a better way, I could hear like happy campaign video yeah. music playing. Right. But, but that, the thing is, at the IMF right now, the International Monetary Fund, there are people who are looking at, the, at you know, what's happened in Greece, what's happened in the EU, and also at Puerto Rico and saying, you know, we might need to think about this in a different way. And one way to think about it is, is this sort of old New Deal style approach to debt relief, which is just to, just to buy it up or, or delete it, just, just default, and then, then have the government actually spend money rather than turn, turn over the island's fate to the financial markets. All right, we'll be right back. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my friend Zach Carter. Hi, Arthur. And joining us by the phone is the host of Tim Black at Night. Tim Black, welcome. Hey, what's going on, Arthur? How you doing, Zach? What's going on, guys? Good to be here. Great to have you, man. So, Tim, you are part of a vibrant online community that is committed to Bernie Sanders even as this week it looks like the primary's over and Hillary Clinton's going to win. so You're killing me, Arthur. You're killing <laughs> me, man. Look, it's not over, Arthur. We're still in it. I mean, look, I'm still watching the Cavaliers. I'm, knowing that, you know, I'm looking at these guys hoping that they can pull it out. And, and I feel the same way about Bernie Sanders. What, what sort of principle do you, do you rely on looking at, uh, at, at why, why you support Sanders at this point? I mean, he, he has one fewer votes and one fewer states. So why do you think that he deserves the nomination? Because I think he's the only person who can, be, who can defeat Donald Trump. That'd be one reason. The other reason is his policy is the only, only person with the policies I believe will best help the middle class, folks without money, people who don't have billions of dollars in the bank, people who don't have political clout. I think Bernie's the only guy who speaks to their issues. 
Even though at this point that depends on essentially getting party elites to overturn the way that the democratic process worked out. Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're in it, right? So, you know, if, if it wasn't for those party elites putting their thing on the scale to begin with, Zach, I don't think that they would have the win that they have. I don't think they would have the numbers that they have. I mean, remember, you know, 40% of these delegates came out before they even knew Bernie Sanders was running. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Uh, talk about that a little more, Tim Black. Tell us how it is that party elites made the primary unfair, and that the result, as it seems this week, with the end of the the you know all the primary elections, is is not really reflect the will of Democratic voters. Well, see, that's the thing. I believe it, fundamentally, I believe that everyone should be able to vote independence as well. We all know that independents are the largest constituency of voters in the country, and I think they should be able been able to to vote. You know, we have issues of voter suppression, which I've covered extensively on my channel, along with Lee Camp and Debbie Lou Sigmund and H. A. Goodman. We've talked about that, and I think those are those are also factors you got to consider. I mean, we have we still have two over two point five million votes to be counted in California. It ain't over. It's not over, brother. And you voted in uh, Maryland, is that right? Yeah, I voted in Maryland. And look, I, I claim no responsibility for what my state did. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't talk to them all. Did you vote by provisional ballot? Are you concerned? Do you think the provisional ballots are, are like, uh, you know, Bernie support that's been basically untapped? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I put out videos. I tried to tell everyone, do not take a provisional ballot. Take a crossover ballot if you're in California. In Maryland, of course, I didn't. You know, I didn't vote with a provisional. I voted uh, directly. So, so did my son, who just turned 18. So, yeah, I mean, we tried to get the word out that you don't know if that provisional ballot is going to count. So that's that's another issue. That, there you go. That's another reason why I'm staying in it. So I have a question for you. I, th- I think there are two different sort of uh, hypotheses about what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. There, there's there's one that says the divide between Clinton and Sanders. Um, seems really heated right now, but is just totally going to clear up. The supporters are going to be fine with whoever the nominee is when that nominee is chosen. The other says that this is actually that Sanders has really tapped into um, some real discontent within the party about its direction and that those supporters are going to be hard to bring into uh, into Hillary Clinton's camp. Um, what, where, where do you stand on that uh, on that question? Man, I have both feet in that second part of your answer, man, the second part of your question. I'm right there with you. I feel that there are a lot of look. Bernie Sanders, you're right. He's tapped into a populist tone, man, that we all can relate to. When he talks about getting money out of politics, if you don't get money out of politics, you got no politics that that works for the people. We have to get money out of politics. Where do you start if you don't have that out? So Bernie's tapped into that. He's tapped into prison reform. He's tapped into decriminalizing marijuana. He tapped into $15 an hour minimum wage. I mean, these are things that just resonate. And I'm and I personally I'm Bernie or bust, so I can't vote Hillary. Like that's that's against my my principles based on the candidate, his based on what he stands for. I just, the platforms are different. So, but but there's been some talk that that let, let's say that Hillary Clinton does become the eventual nominee. That there are, there are concessions that she can make to people who are who are strong Bernie Sanders supporters like yourselves. Uh, like you know, people are talking right now about getting Elizabeth Warren on the ticket, things like that. Would would Warren's presence on the ticket sway you at all? Uh, you know what? It would not. And this is the real. This is the reason why I think this is Zach. Zach, the reason is this: I don't trust Hillary. I just don't trust her. See, 
see, if if I believe that she would stand behind her word, then a modification of her policy, then I would accept it. But the fact that I don't believe that, because she flip-flops so, so, you know, so basically, it's part of, it's like a tick, you know? She, uh, <laughs> it's like a Tourette situation where she, you know, if, if, if it's expedient, I mean, look, look back, 2013, 2013, she was against uh, gay marriage all the way up until 2013. All of a sudden she says, hey, I've come to the light. I've walked into the light. Well, you know what? If you're a progressive and you just figured out in 2013 that uh, same-sex marriage should be legal, I got a problem with that. What a, I, mean, uh, I was on board with that back in the 90s. That, I mean, if you want to marry somebody, marry them. Be happy. And, and, but that, that was like what a lot of people were doing, including the president, and that's no excuse. No, no excuse. No excuse. I don't. <laughs> I think that's true on gay marriage. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> wrong. wrong is wrong. Wrong, wrong is wrong. Wrong is wrong. That's a good point. So Elizabeth Warren has been going after Donald Trump. She's endorsing Hillary. What What are your thoughts on Elizabeth Warren? I mean, before Bernie Sanders' campaign really took off, she was the senator who really seemed to represent the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Who You said Elizabeth. I'm trying to remember who you're talking about because there was this woman I used to know. Her name was Elizabeth, but I no longer know this woman because this person is not the person I thought her to be. I mean, come on, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> she cut her teeth, man. She, this woman was standing up for people. She was back in 2004 saying, hey, you didn't get that money by yourself. You used our roads to get to work. You know, you hired our police. You didn't make that money by yourself. She was populist. She was speaking for the people. She was so good that Obama took a part of her speech and put it in his 2012 campaign speech against Romney. And this woman is the same woman now who's supporting Hillary, Hillary Clinton, the queen of darkness, who is willing oh. to take money from Wall Street. Well, money from Wall Street, prison, prison, private prison money. Come on, it's totally against who Elizabeth Warren used to be. She's now a walker. She's dead to me. She's a walker. So <laughs> would you really sit out uh, a Hillary Trump election next fall? No, I'm not saying that, man. I'm looking at Jill Stein, and Jill Stein's looking real good to me right about now. She's looking good to me. I would love to influence Bernie to run and run with the Green Party. I know that door is open. I could also write in a candidate. Hey, people been writing in candidates since the beginning of time. Some people write in Jimmy uh, JJ from Good Times. Some people write in Casper the Friendly Ghost. I can write in. I can write in Bernie Sanders if I choose to. All right, Tim Black refuses to be boxed in by Hillary Clinton. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me, man. I appreciate it. See you. Nice talking to you, Tim. Welcome back. Arthur Delaney is with us here today. Hi. And we welcome back our good friend, Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble. Congressman Ribble, you must be so looking forward every day to getting out of Washington. Well, I, I do look forward. I, I'm like on the first plane out of the place when I can when I can go back to Wisconsin. Do you have any idea how nice summers are? In Green Bay, Wisconsin. Oh, I imagine they're great. I imagine they're fantastic. You're what? Maybe our listeners haven't witnessed this, but on like a Thursday evening vote, the door opens and it's like school gets out, and members of Congress race down the big front steps 
to their waiting vehicles to get to the airport because you know what ha- you know what happens on the other end of that airplane trip i get to see my wife sometimes i get to see grandkids uh, brothers and family and i'm anxious to go home okay well uh, Congressman Ribble, uh, you early on joining us on these podcasts expressed something of what I would characterize as a distaste for uh, for reality show hair model Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, he's had a few weeks now to sort of acclimate himself to the general election and make that pivot starting to come around. No, um, <laughs> that was a trick I, question. I come around because, well, first of all, there's not a pivot. Um, you normally candidates do make a pivot, though, don't they? They uh, <laughs> they they kind of appeal to uh, the outer reaches of their their own political party. So you'll see Democrats tack to the left, the Republicans tack to the right to win their primaries, and then uh, like magic, when the general election occurs, they pivot back to the center because they need to have that broad appeal. There was um, the, yeah, it's the, fascinating to see that that hasn't happened yet. There was that Mitt Romney advisor who said, like in that, you know, shaking in that's a sketch. <laughs> and and the, the Trump campaign is like shaking a baby. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. That, that, that might be a little. Simple. I'm not sure I could track that metaphor or endorse that metaphor, but okay. But, yeah, me neither. It just means, you know, it, it's bad. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, you know, the, the interesting thing is you're not really seeing either candidate at this point make much of a pivot at all. And so I think maybe you'll, you might see some of that after the convention. So they're still, they're still kind of locked in their in their uh, the rigidity of where they were during the, the primary, and uh, you would think that at this point things would you would have a more seasoned tone um, moving into those, but it, neither neither one has gone that direction. With regard to the pivot, though, you know one of the things that I think that a lot of people took their cues from uh, was when Paul Ryan. Uh, sort of offered up his it wasn't the most explosive endorsement certainly certainly i've sat down for some meals that i've enjoyed more than maybe paul ryan enjoyed digging into trump but but nevertheless he did sort of give an endorsement and from that moment on you kind of thought that maybe trump was going to start doing that what paul manafort calls filling the chair routine but it hasn't happened but for one maybe anesthetized teleprompter speech. Do you think that there's buyer's remorse with with Paul Ryan? What is? I mean, he seems to be in the worst possible situation right well, now. Well, I, I, I couldn't speak for Paul as far as what his internal conflicts are uh, in relationship to uh, to the nominee. Uh, he's in a tough spot. I mean, he's the, the chairman of the convention. Um, Republican primary voters have selected this candidate. Uh, certainly, I, I think you're going to see Paul continue to do what he's done up until this point. If uh, if the, if the uh, candidate says something, or Mr. Trump says something that he believes is uh, kind of over the line, or uh, is just something that he disagrees with, he's going to say something about it um, because that's that's part of Paul's principle, you know. Um, and uh, it doesn't surprise me that he's that way. I've, uh, I've known Paul now for six or seven years, and uh, uh, he is a person that uh, has strong moral convictions. And if uh, if they get rubbed the wrong way, he's gonna he's gonna make a statement about it. Congressman Reed Ribble, you are one of the uh, you're many Republicans who has uh, not endorsed, pointedly not endorsed, the Republican nominee Donald R- Trump. Really, is one of the OGs in that. So you're one of the originals. Yeah. 
but many others have. And, and I know you're leaving Congress after this term, but what will happen in the in this what seems to be the likely scenario at this point that you know Trump just loses? Uh, will people say, "Ah, we'll get him next time," and resume their friendship, or, or do you foresee lasting damage? To, well, uh, I, I have concerns about damage to to the party um, because so many of the policy positions that he's taking are not the basically Republican Party platform policies. Uh, Republicans traditionally have been uh, more open to and wanting to see uh, better trade agreements and uh, more opportunity for uh, U.S. companies, large and small, to sell abroad. Uh, we make some of the best. Uh, things in the world, uh, the products that we produce here. I'm, I'm from northeast Wisconsin, um, one of the largest dairy and cheese producing areas in the world. Um, and we'd like to see uh, those products that uh, the world would like to purchase available uh, both in Vietnam and in China and Australia. Um, we'd like to see those products sold uh, and have more customers there. Trump has been very vocal about being anti-trade. Um, and I just think there's too many of those circumstances um, that it can do some serious damage to the, the, the basic underpinnings of what it means to be a conservative in America today. Now, starting two weeks ago, Congressman Reed Ribbled, Republicans in the House of Representatives began the process of uh, uh, laying out a really broad agenda going issue by issue each week. You know, the, It started with poverty and the welfare state, and, and now it's moved on to... Uh, business regulation. So Paul Ryan's laying out, and Republicans in the House are laying out all the things they stand for, and it just has nothing to do with anything that Donald Trump has been saying. Is is It, it, it does seem far more professionalized than anything Donald Trump is doing. That's without a doubt. And is that the idea? Well, I don't know that that's necessarily, necessarily the idea, but remember that the legislative branch is an equal body of government to the executive branch. And there's always going to be tension between those two branches of government, even when they're controlled by the same political party. And I think what, what uh, Speaker Ryan is trying to do is say, listen, this is what a Republican legislative branch agenda is going to look like in 2017. Here's how we're going to approach it and try to build some support from, from the uh, potential executive for these ideas. The president in our system of government has a right to accept or reject those ideas. Uh, but the American people will vote for the Congress as a checkpoint and check and balance to the executive branch and vice versa. And I'm, so I think what Paul's doing is exactly the right thing to do. I mean, I understand, I understand that completely, and uh, there's no bigger fan of separation powers than me. But, but at the same <laughs> time, I, I feel I feel like that it's just so different. It feels like part of what Paul Ryan's doing is somewhat remedial. He's sort of like indicating to the Trump campaign, this is where the ballpark is. This is where we got the bats and the balls and the gloves. Here's where we're playing. You need to consider moving inside here. But you also have guys like uh, Senator Cornyn, who today just told reporters he's not even going to talk about Donald Trump until November 8th. This is just not normal. Normally, there is at least some synergy between this party standard bearer and their their legislative colleagues. Is, am, I, am I completely missing the boat on that? No, you're not. No, there's, there, there typically is. But uh, 
uh, Donald Trump has not been particularly articulate on the policies that he chooses to govern by. He's spoken a bit about immigration. In fact, in the early days, his entire thing was about we're going to build a wall, and then when Mexico didn't like it, he said we're going to make it 10 feet taller and whatnot. Um, because magic. That, but that's yeah. But that's not really. That, that's not putting the, the the meat and bones on an immigration policy per se. That's that's the responsibility under Article One of the Constitution of the Congress. All legislative powers are vested in a Congress. And so I think what you're seeing from Paul is saying, okay, if a candidate doesn't specifically want to spell these things out, we will. This is still so. This is still like a little bit of. You know, maybe some hopeful kind of patty caking going on. Well, a little bit, if you want to, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and, and and I can clearly say, I can clearly see um, that it's easy to go down that that road. Um, but I do think it's important for both Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan to be very specific with our nominee in relationship to what we believe the legislative agenda ought to be when the candidate is in full agreement. It makes it simpler. But because he hasn't been willing to articulate these things, I think it's important for Paul Ryan to do so. Uh, lastly, Congressman Reed Ribble, if, if Trump came out in support of, say, biennial budgeting, which is a priority of yours, would that uh, win you over? No, he wouldn't win me over, but I, I, I would say he, he, at least he got this one thing right. Uh -huh. And um, because virtually every president since Ronald Reagan has supported this reform. All right. Sounds like it's a question of character. <laughs> for me, for me, it is. Understood. All right, Congressman Ribble, thanks for joining us. As always, it's great to have you on, uh, and uh, wish you the best, man. You're welcome. <laughs> I enjoyed these conversations. Thanks. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Green Party presidential candidate Dr. Jill Stein, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, commentator and podcaster Tim Black, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Please be good to each other.